Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Spotify. And you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's conversational corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic, Anthony Comstock's Crusade Against Lust, Doomed Madness or Moral Heroism? For his many admirers, he was a lone, religiously righteous and pure crusader for moral conduct in life, fighting the legal and moral corruption that comes with creating, selling, and consuming lustful images. For his increasingly many detractors, he was the very embodiment of the hypocritical, puritanical busybody a paranoiac who saw sin where there was none, and a Philistine who could not appreciate the power of art and life as it is. Love him or hate him, Anthony Comstock was one of the most important figures of the Gilded Age, a lightning rod for an America that was still overwhelmingly Christian in morals and beliefs, but which was increasingly enjoying the fruits of a modern, partially secularizing society, full of sexual fun and artistic license. But who was Comstock? How did he come to occupy so prominent a position in American life? And what can we learn from the fight for and against what was called Comstockery today? This will be another conversation with myself in which I discuss a key issue of this historical era, this time in the form of a sort of radio lecture. Let me start by laying my own personal cards on the table as this will necessarily involve more of my own personal opinion than usual in this podcast. On the one hand, I am an observant Orthodox Jew and a social and religious conservative in outlook more broadly. On the other hand, I am a very serious, small-d, democratic conservative. I am skeptical of most censorship efforts and believe that democracies need to be big enough to contain both the faithful and the faithless, religiously, sexually, or otherwise. So in in preparing for this episode, I found myself sympathizing with and understanding both sides of the debate about Anthony Comstock, and I hope you will consider both sides as well. While I will be expressing my own opinion as alongside presenting the facts here, I invite the listener to consult the same sources that I did and also make up their own mind. The first source that I consulted is entitled Outlawed, How Anthony Comstock Fought and Won the Purity of a Nation by Charles Trumbull. This is a book which is not an objective academic history by any means, but 
if you will, Anthony Comstock's last testament to the United States and to Americans in general about what he wished to achieve in his life and work and what legacy he wished to leave. I found it a very interesting source, again, not because I thought it was a perfectly accurate history, but because it was an interesting portrayal of how he wished to be remembered and how he wished to be understood. The second source I consulted is entitled Lust on Trial, Censorship and the Rise of American Obscenity in the Age of Anthony Comstock by Dr. Amy Werbel. This is a much more critical, I sometimes think a little too critical, uh, understanding of Anthony Comstock's life and work. Um, and I should warn the listener that it does contain more than its share of images which are not safe for work, even by the standards of our day. So I would advise discretion and caution uh, when consulting it, even though it is a highly informative and very insightful book to read. Indeed, the very advice I just gave, that every individual should uh, use their own discretion and use their own um, moral judgment in deciding what or what not to consume is at the very heart of this episode. And I hope that I will have at the very least provoked some questions about that issue by the end of this. So let's start with the beginning. Who on earth was Anthony Comstock? Comstock uh, was part of a Puritan New England uh, settlement named New Canaan in the state of Connecticut. He was raised by a devout mother and unfortunately something of a deadbeat father um, in a very religious, very devout community that placed a very heavy emphasis not only on good works, but also on avoiding any form of temptation uh, which would lead one to sin and thus to damnation. And, and this is important for the uh, later in the episode, not only things which are cheap uh, sin, but even higher art and higher literature, which could cause one to have lustful thoughts lead to lustful acts. And I will uh, leave the uh, listener to understand what that means without being explicit. Like many in his generation, uh, he was moved by the, cry, uh, by the cries of those in the North who sa uh, said that the, the young men of the North must join the cause and volunteer to fight for the Union against slavery. His brother served and was killed in the first, uh, in the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg, and he himself served in the Union Army, uh, I believe, for more than half of it much of it in garrison duty in the state of Florida. While there, he uh, did his best to spread the, what he considered to be the good word among his fellow soldiers. And he was more than aware that as soldiers who spent most of their time not, in, not preparing for or being involved in battle, but simply spending the time as best they could, they consumed all sorts of entertainment and literature, much of which would be considered pornographic even today. While he was certainly not happy with that sort of thing, he did not consider himself to be preparing for a life of crusading against such things, instead seeking to become an honorable and respectable middle-class merchant in, in an urban setting 
much like many of his generation after the war had ended. Indeed, interestingly enough, the Puritan zealot Anthony Comstock, guy who grew up in a small town and who was raised on the idea of being freed of any influence which could lead one to sin, found himself moving from New Canaan to New York City, the biggest, fastest growing, most modern city in the United States, and one which was considered even before the war to be a den of sin and iniquity. Already when he moved to this, uh, to this city, he encountered this even around where he lived, a world where there was a great deal of prostitution, consume, con, uh, consuming of liquor, and the spread of all sorts of literature which was considered by religious moralists to be sinful and awful and worthy of condemnation. Um, although there were technically laws on the books, both local and state, that demanded the prosecution of people who were involved in these actions, before the Civil War, these, uh, these laws tended to be very indifferently enforced and very indifferently punished. As urban historian John C. Tiford said of the police in this era, they were a symbol of authority in a very in a libertarian nation. While there were many people living not just in small towns, but even in cities who wanted these laws enforced to better improve the morals, not just of the immigrants who were coming into the cities, but also sometimes of wayward people of the better sort, the old stock Protestant natives of the upper middle class and of the wealthy class. There were also plenty of people in these cities, mainly, though not exclusively, immigrant Americans or at the very least dissenting Americans, who wanted the police and the law to leave them to do as they wished and leave them the hell alone. Anthony Comstock, however, there, although he slowly moved his way up in the world of uh, in the world of small businesses and becoming more and more skilled at selling and buying things, uh, found himself involved getting involved in citizens' arrests, bypassing the often corrupt or indifferent police to try and shut down saloon keepers or all sorts of other low sorts who were selling uh, who were selling. Uh, pornographic, or at the very least, sexually arousing literature. In doing so, and in serving as a kind of one-man crusader for this sort of thing, he attracted the attention of the local YMCA. Today, we think of the YMCA as exclusively an institution for good and charitable works without necessarily much religious judgment. But at the time Comstock was operating, shortly after the Civil War, uh, many of the people involved in its ranks, uh, people, uh, lawyers and professionals and members of the relative upper crust of New York City society, Republicans all and Protestants all, and we'll get to that, uh, we'll, stress, uh, we'll discuss the importance of this more in a moment, uh, thought it also important to clamp down on vice and sin as well. Comstock a member of the YMCA and an active participant gained, gained the YMCA support, which then indeed sent him to DC to advocate for not only to advocate for a federal law, which would help uh, good American Christians to clamp down on the purveyors of sin with real punishments, real enforcement power. 
And Comstock indeed would put, uh, present Republican legislature, uh, legislators uh, with all sorts of literatures which he had seized as part of his citizens' arrests. And he got and he convinced them, even though Congress's session was about to shut down, and indeed the Democrats were about to take over due to the crisis of 1873, to quickly pass a very sweeping law which would allow for the censorship of any material of any kind, almost of any kind, that was, that was sent in the U.S. mails to promote sin that, would cause, uh, that was considered lewd or obscene, or, as we know from news reports today, would promote con- contraception or abortion. These things were linked in the mind of Comstock and of religious moralists of the time, because all these things were considered to drive people away from the proper uh, usage of the sexual urge, which was, of course, to form families and to have children, and anything which interrupted that was considered to be bad. A brief note on the on the passage of this law. The party which passed it, the Republican Party, when they're discussed in this period, they tend to be discussed in one of two contexts. One, in the Gilded Age, obviously, is as the party which tended to be very pro-business, very pro-laissez-faire, very pro-capital, either for the bad, by people who are progressives or perhaps more left-leaning today, or for the good, especially the pro-business libertarians or pro-free market conservatives. Or they tend to be discussed within the context of race, either as the good guys who um, got rid of slavery and did their best to secure civil rights for the freedmen and the black and black Americans generally uh, after the Civil War, or as the people who then unfortunately abandoned those causes later in this period. Both are very important to discuss, but there was a third aspect here that sometimes gets left by the wayside. The Republican Party of the Gilded Age were very much the heirs to the Whig Party of the antebellum era. And the Whig Party tended to be a much more, broadly speaking, obviously, a much more moralizing party, a much more strictly Protestant uh, evangelical party in the broad terms, not necessarily uh, strictly doctrinal terms. These were people who tended to favor things like Sabbath laws, where, where you could be fined uh, for engaging all, in all sorts of activities on a Sunday. Uh, they tried to pass laws to ban gambling, to ban lot- lotteries. Uh, they were in favor of prohibition of liquor, either its sale or consumption at the local, state, and later federal levels. And of course, they were in favor of doing whatever po- uh, what they could possibly to restrict sexual sin because the sanctity of the home for them was very important. The Democratic Party, while not necessarily libertine, tended to be, broadly speaking, more skeptical of such efforts. Not because they didn't believe uh, in morality or religious morality, but because the Democratic Party tended to be composed of the people who had at least different or differing views on these subjects than the people who tended to vote Republican. This was the party of the Irish Catholics, the religious dissenters, and sometimes even the agnostics and so forth. 
So it makes it, it is significant that the Comstock Act, as it came to be called, was passed by the a Republican House, a Republican Senate, and signed by a Republican president, U.S. Grant. It's also worth noting that nowadays we tend to think of the Republican Party, uh, for better or worse, as having its morality dictated by uh, denominations such as Southern Baptists. The Republican Party in this era, quite the contrary, uh, was very much informed much more by New England and Puritan instincts. Anthony Comstock was born and raised in Connecticut. His supporters came from New York City, not from Nashville. And uh, President Grant, although non-practicing, was a Methodist from Ohio. It's important to understand these things so that we don't think uh, that the DNA of the Republican Party, even though it waxed and waned on the subject, all of a sudden changed on the issue in the 1960s to the 1970s uh, due to varying uh, causes. The party's tendency to want to be involved in the morals of the citizenry and not just the economics was, a core, was often a core part of its being because they believed that virtue and material success, rightly or wrongly, were connected to each other, as was virtue and good citizenship. Bracketing that off, the Comstock Act was an incredibly sweeping act, which left a lot of questions which would be uh, hotly debated and indeed are hotly debated to this day. For starters, what on earth counts as obscene? Is there a scientific test? Is there a scholarly test? Is it simply, I know it when I see it? And if so, how exactly can one prosecute such a subjective concept in a court of law and try people in front of a jury of their peers? Comstock would learn to deal with these questions in various, various ways soon enough, because not only was the law he advocated passed by Congress, but he himself was made a postal inspector for, in, the state of, in the state of New York given the responsibility of trying to intercept and stop and prevent the distribution of any of this material through the U.S. mails. An interesting, he, he argued for an interesting arrangement, which would later get him into trouble. In order to avoid the, in order to avoid the obscenity inspector becoming a part of the spoil system, where what mattered more was your partisan loyalty and not your dedication to your craft, he insisted, while officially holding the position of postal inspector, to not really receive a salary from the United States government. Instead, getting uh, receiving private support from his aforementioned YMCA members uh, through a separate body that they established called the Society for the Suppression of Vice. Yes, something that sounds like it would come from perhaps from Saudi Arabia actually existed and was indeed broadly supported in New York City. Now, Comstock's powers were not unlimited. He could not, like a military censor, open private letters, at least not without a warrant. He, he could intercept commercial second-class mail, magazines, and the like. And he could have people come to an addressee and say, we are interested in intercepting this material. And generally speaking, and there's no reason to doubt him on this, 
they would comply. But he was America, an American official censor on obscenity, but he was not like a Russian censor who could indeed invade someone's privacy at will. A second thing, and this is also important, he did not just have the power to try and try people uh, for a law which could ha- hit them with a heavy fine and uh, at least one year, in, around one year in jail. The law also empowered him to seize and effectively destroy any material he deemed to be obscene. And he, that was, this would make him almost akin, reminds me of the uh, zealous priest Savonarola uh, during Renaissance Italy in the famous Bonfire of the Vanities. Comstock, going about to his efforts to suppress obscenity, would soon be able to seize a lot of material And he first set his eyes on the aforementioned saloon keepers, the people who uh, sold uh, sold, uh, lustful material uh, on the street. But he ran into a real problem. First of all, there were good defense attorneys who tried to uh, challenge him and say that he was trying to entrap his his clients, uh, their clients. I don't think it's entirely accurate to say that, at least according to Werbel, who, as I said, is quite critical. Uh, Comstock's actions did not really fit the definition of entrapment, which would be to get someone to do something that they wouldn't normally do. What he would do is many newspapers in in New York City, and we'll get to the newspapers uh, later on, would often openly advertise for these items, and all he did was simply ask to order it. Was simply asked to order them like any other customer. So it was not quite entrapment. Nevertheless, as I said, like all policemen, he was a symbol of authority in a libertarian nation, and many prosecutors and juries were not really all that keen on convicting anybody for what seemed like a relatively piddling charge. In the event he even managed to get convictions, convictions tended to be fairly light, small fines, or a brief stint in prison. And this would be true throughout most of his career. There were a number of exceptions, but generally speaking, the main power Comstock had was in deterring people from distributing such literature or of entirely destroying the material that they used, including their original printing plates. His main success in the early part of his career was to establish a standard for obscenity, which was very broad again, but with very much in line at the very least with, it, with, the, pe- with the people uh, that wanted him to engage in censorship. And this was that obscenity was anything which might deprave or corrupt the public morals. You can see that this is extremely sweeping, but very much in line both with his religious upbringing and that of his benefactors in the YMCA and the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. But Comstock started to run into trouble when he tried to expand that definition of obscenity and go after everything he considered to be lustful. Two, th- uh, two things stand out. First of all, there was entertainment. As Trav S.D., who I interviewed in a previous episode, discusses in Don't Throw Applause, uh, No Applause, Just Throw Money, 
Um, although vaudeville did do what it could to clean up its act, quote unquote, so that it would become more family friendly and not exclusively male, uh, an act which women could bring uh, could show up to as did children, they nevertheless often pushed the envelope in case uh, in terms of what they were allowed to do, the jokes they were allowed to tell, the flesh they were allowed to show. And Comstock did what he could to try and go after this form of entertainment. And while, and while uh, entertainers uh, and fairs were willing to self-censor to a degree, there were hard limits on it, and there wasn't, and there, uh, and they were not willing to shut down absolutely everything that he wanted. This became even more difficult as time went on because technology not just printing technology, but later, uh, later auditory technology and vis- video technology became so cheap and so easy to distribute and almost naturally full of these sorts of uh, arousing and titillating images and entertainments that Comstock, as much as he tried, ended up becoming overwhelmed. Even more core and even more opening of a debate was Comstock's going to war after art itself. Remember that in the community that he was raised, even high literature, even things which we would call art for art's sake or things which stand on its own, if it could cause one could have to have lustful thoughts or lead to lustful actions, it was bad and needed to be condemned and destroyed. But it wasn't quite that simple. For starters, The Gilded Age was a time where, thanks to America's growing wealth and growing prestige, a lot of people had more money and they wanted to become more respectable, especially new money, but also old money and even people going up into the middle class. And this include increasing consumption, paying for and patronizing of the arts, music, classical music, opera, high theater, and the physical arts such as paintings and sculptures. And in Europe at the time, it was quite fashionable to sculpt or paint nude images, sometimes with the aim of being provocative or of being subversive, but other times simply for the aim of celebrating the human body as such. And many rich people in New York City uh, owned, owned, uh, owned many sculptures and paintings and they showed it to many respectable people. And while Comstock wanted to go after them, there were hard limits on it because these were people, these were not uh, small low-down saloon keepers or people selling bad stuff by the roadside. These were people with powerful men in politics, people who could afford fancy lawyers, and people who could easily whip up the press to attack Comstock himself. Also, during this time, many artists, just as many music, just as many native-born musicians and actors, started to emerge. Uh, many artists started to professionalize in the United States, and their main lodestar was Europe. Like many in the Progressive Age, they saw themselves as being part of an expert, maybe not scientific, but nevertheless profession. And while some of them did agree that there was such a thing as obscenity and there was such a thing as art that shouldn't be displayed, 
they nevertheless thought that it should be a matter of professional judgment, not a matter for people like Comstock, who they thought backwards, uh, backwards Philistines. These people fought back very strongly. So they often lost in court, but they nevertheless did provoke and lead to much of a public debate over whether or not art itself, classical art, should be considered something that needs to be condemned and destroyed, as in the aforementioned Bonfire of the Vanities. Said artists often lampooned Comstock in the newspapers. They led to a great deal of publicity in the press and helped to guide American public tastes, or at least some American public tastes, away from the standard that Comstock had tried to establish, which was that anything, no matter whether made of a gene made by a genius or by a low or by a low person, uh, which corrupted the public morals, needed to be destroyed, no matter its general quote unquote objective artistic value. And there were other issues as well. In the city of Philadelphia, for instance, one effort by uh, people like Comstock to censor art led to a judge saying, and rightly so, that different Christian or religious denominations had different understandings of what counted as sinful. In different, uh, there were denominations who were full of devout people, full of people who led moral lives, but who nevertheless did not consider nude uh, sculptures of St. David or Adam to be something that, were, that was sinful or caused lust. So, while Comstock was initially successful in his efforts, his effort to entirely shut down anything which might cause lust ended up creating much public controversy and much debate over whether or not his position was correct. And while it's true that, as Werbel notes, there were radical artists who thought there were, should be absolutely no limit to art, and indeed, that showing art as it is, uh, showing humanity as it is, means showing it even in the most um, naked forms. Even people who were in the middle nevertheless found themselves in the middle and didn't, nevertheless, didn't necessarily agree with Comstock. It should be noted that Comstock did not help himself here. Because he was so zealous and because he believed that he was purifying a nation, he tended to have an uncompromising attitude and he burned bridges even with people with whom he would agree. The Women's Christian uh, Temperance Union or women in the American Library Association who also tended to agree that, that certain books or certain materials should not be published or displayed or made available to the public, nevertheless often disagreed with Comstock at, in terms of who should lead the cause and what should count as uh, bad material. And Comstock would not yield an inch. And he, so instead of building coalitions, he destroyed them. It's also worth comparing Comstock perhaps to the prohibitionists of his time, who even though they managed to gain a general consen a societal consensus that a lot of alcohol was bad, went way too far in the other direction. When the Prohibition Amendment was passed, there was, a, some uh, there was a significant amount of debate as to what should be defined as alcohol. So a lot of people in the middle 
believed that beer, or at least light alcohol, should be excluded, while hard whiskey and other such spirits should be banned. But the for the prohibitionists, any alcohol at all must be banned because it would cause sin and corruption and destroy lives. Similarly with Comstock, because he did not know where to stop or did not think there was anywhere to stop, he ended up encouraging and creating more resistance the more he, uh, uh, the more he antagonized people and tried to go after art and entertainment, even relatively safe entertainment, and even entertainment and art, which we today would not even raise an eyebrow at and would certainly not think that it would cause moral corruption. Comstock himself was a complicated figure. There's no reason to think he was ever personally corrupt or that he was on the take. And indeed, there's no reason to doubt that he refused all sorts of efforts to bribe him to look the other way when he went after immoral acts or immoral people. And he does seem to have had something of a charitable streak. But there were darker sides too. He was not the by-the-book by person he portrayed himself as, more of, a dirt, more of a dirty Harry against obscenity. In some cases, conducting searches without warrants or presenting evidence before a grand jury without the local prosecutor's knowledge or consent. Indeed, he would often try to prevent evidence being presented before a jury of his peers with the idea that there is no need to do so something which would eventually be overturned in later judicial decisions. And because he was so hot on condemning sin and preventing sin, he was even indifferent to the fact that he drove some of the people involved in the selling of pornography or being involved in abortion to suicide. And his own writings and diaries are filled with what can only be called vicious and sometimes bigoted statements toward immigrants and Jews and other people involved in the trade as though there weren't also native-born Protestants who, sold, uh, who purchased and sold such works. Dr. Werbel, in her book on, the, on Lust on Trial, discusses, the, uh, discusses at the end of her book how she thinks that Comstock ultimately failed. The New York Society, uh, Society for the Suppression of Vice died out. Its benefactors dwindled and it was eventually dismantled. Meanwhile, a lot of the people who Comstock tried to suppress ended up benefiting a great deal from the publicity, so much so that a lot of actors and actresses and artists who wanted to get free publicity would warn that they are, uh, that they are on the run from Comstock. Margaret Sanger, the, uh, the famous and in, some, and in some circles infamous founder of Planned Parenthood, who sought to advance the cause of, of family planning, including contraception and abortion, uh, was made nationally famous by Comstock's efforts. But I would, I guess, say that it's not quite as simple. After all, even after Comstock died, and even with the advance of technology, um, the tendency, the desire of many people, many ordinary citizens, many religious and moral societies in the United States to try, if not to clamp down, then at least restrict or moderate the use of various technologies for what they considered to be morally corrupting uses, continued. The Hayes Code on American cinema, the Comics Code imposed in the 1950s, 
the rating systems which are still imposed today on movies and video games. While this, nevertheless, while this did create ca uh, counter reactions and underground, uh, and underground cultures, uh, which tried to be as extreme as possible, the tug, uh, the, the tug of war between the moralizers and the people who want to censor or restrict or restrain what general Amer what Americans consume, both adults and children, and those who think that one should be that freedom in America means the ability to spread whatever culture you like and caveat emptor, very much continued after Comstock and indeed still continues today. And while artists definitely did and do conceive of themselves as experts and professional experts to be able to determine what is, is, what is obscene or indeed whether such a term as obscenity should even exist. In a democratic society, uh, libertarians are not the only ones who get a say. So, uh, so too do many American citizens who, to varying degrees and for various reasons, think that certain things should be restricted. And it's also worth considering the cost. A lot of people like to discuss prohibition as an experiment that failed, and they are correct. The effort, like Comstock's effort to absolutely suppress anything which might even theoretically cause lustful uh, thoughts, ultimately failed. It created a divided nation. It created a lot of self-censorship, but it created a lot of provocation as well. Provocation which may not have even emerged were it not for his being so zealous. But while prohibition failed, for instance, many thousands of lives and even more are still destroyed by alcohol today. The war of drugs may still be, may be a failure, but again, many people's lives are still destroyed by all sorts of addictions to, uh, in my day, it, when I was a kid, it was cocaine uh, and things like that. And today it is fentanyl. And while it is certainly true that most people know how to drink responsibly, and most people do not become addicted to just by seeing a woman in, um, uh, in modest attire. There are materials and there are uh, platforms which contain, uh, which contain images which could scar one for life, which could encourage behavior which is dangerous or immoral even by our standards. So it's not quite as simple as talking about, uh, as talking about Comstock's ultimate failure as a failure just for freedom. Freedom, after all, includes the right and the ability to do quote unquote wrong, to make mistakes, to spread ideas which perhaps you cannot be legally prosecuted for them, but you may end up nevertheless causing damage. Freedom is dangerous. It includes responsibility, the responsibility of the individual, the responsibility of a family, of a community, and of a nation. And the question of whether or not lo the law should be involved remains a fraught one. Comstock's act, after all, was never ultimately repealed, except with the exception of the, pro uh, of the provision on contraception. Art, as G.K. Chesterton once said, like morality, involves drawing the line somewhere. And while we may think that, and while we may, I think rightly, think Comstock overzealous and perhaps too indifferent to all sorts of other sufferings and other issues of moral justice 
and even religious justice, it does not necessarily mean that the, thing, that the evils he was fighting did not exist or do not need contending with. We still debate where to draw the line today. I will leave the listener to ponder these questions. And I invite you to see uh, uh, to tune in next time at Obvious Conversational Corner on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Spotify. And you can support this podcast on Patreon. Academic books and research for this episode is not cheap, and I appreciate your support. Thank you. Thank you.